Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Hi, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I have an anthology coming out called Moms Don't Have Time 2, a quarantine anthology. And it comes out on February 16th and has essays by 60 plus of the authors who have been on this podcast. So first of all, please pre-order this book. I think you will love it. I'm so excited about all the authors who are represented. Um, just to give you a few, um, Chris Bajalian, uh, Jewel Parker Rhodes, Ashley Prentice Norton, Gretchen Rubin, Rima Zaman, Eileen Zimmerman. And that is just from the first page of the multi-page table of contents. So please pick up this book, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology. It's available anywhere you buy books, Amazon, bookshop.org, and your local independent bookstore. So please pick up a copy. And also, I want to invite you listeners to my um, fundraiser slash launch party the night it comes out on February 16th, a Tuesday at 7 p.m., Bookhampton and the Children's Museum of the East End are co-hosting it for me. And 50 of the authors who wrote essays in this book, as well as many of the amazing authors who blurbed this book, um, who wrote little praiseworthy quotes at at the front, will be there. And you can be there too. So if you go to my website, zibbyowens.com, and just click on Anthology and go to Book Tour, you will see um, a whole fundraiser section. And for $50, um, you can attend. You'll get a copy of the book, and you'll get to schmooze on Zoom with all of these amazing authors. This is like going to be the literary happening of February. So please come. I would love to see you all in person on Zoom, I guess, but even see some of your faces. I know so many of you are really loyal listeners, and that makes me really happy. All proceeds of the book and the fundraiser are going to the Susan Felice Owens Program for COVID-19 Vaccine Research at Mount Sinai Health System. And it is named after my husband's mother, who passed away from COVID over the summer, which many of you followed along on Instagram as I uh, recounted that horrific experience. So all the proceeds are going there. The cost includes the price of a book. So thank you for supporting this effort and for supporting my book. I can't wait to see you there. Today's episode has been sponsored by Chicken Soup for the Soul, Making Me Time, 101 Stories About Self-Care and Balance, edited by Amy Newmark. This is a fantastic collection of essays, and everyone will find something relatable and that they can use to make their lives better within these essays. Lade Hubbard is the author of The Rib King, a novel. She's also the author of The Talented Ribkins, which received the 2018 Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence and the Hurston Wright Legacy Award for Debut Fiction. She received a 2016 Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award, as well as fellowships from the McDowell Colony. 
Born in Massachusetts and raised in the U.S. Virgin Islands in Florida, she currently lives in New Orleans with her husband and three children. Welcome, lady. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your novel, The Rib King. Oh, no, that's great. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. I've been really excited about this. Can you tell listeners, please, what The Rib King is about? Well, a very brief synopsis would be it's about an African-American man who is a groundskeeper and it's 1914 and he invents a meat sauce that becomes a national sensation and it's very popular. It's distributed all over the country and he spends the rest of his life touring the country, giving cooking demonstrations as the rib king. Amazing. Was this based on a recipe of yours? Where did this come from? Where? No. Do you cook? I don't. And actually I have quite a few food allergies. So yeah, Hmm. someone was saying maybe it's like a weird manifestation of my relationship with food that I would want to write about someone that invented a meat sauce. But I was really interested in food as a commodity back Mm -hmm. then. So it's more about the circulation of the product that he creates. Yeah. Yeah. And I love how you set the whole thing up and show us so clearly what daily life is like in this household. And literally you're like right there on the bus going home with August and traveling and seeing like his coworkers house. And like, it's just so vivid and how he is so loyal to his job that he would want to like run back in when he saw something amiss. And like that pride of like, you know, taking ownership of your job very seriously. And, you know, you go from that to everything else that ends up happening. It's, it's amazing how you painted that picture. How did you go back and recreate? I mean, that's such a certain time and place and the bus stops and the, you know what I mean? Like everything is so, it looks like you were looking at an old picture that was weathered and you were like, I'm going to write, was that what it was? Tell me about it. In part. Yeah. I looked at a lot of pictures of, of homes at the time and just a lot of images, a lot of books, a lot of research, It was actually really fascinating, but it felt very necessary. So there's no city named in the book for where it takes place, but all the research was based in Chicago. So like grounding it in a specific place when I was trying to write it was was very important, I think, for me to understand the characters, right, And, and just how they existed in space back then or to try to understand, do you know? Yeah. So yeah, it was a lot of research, but little details What you know, was for me, there's a scene in the first part where it talks about one of the, the maids putting a cloth over the light mm-hmm. that yeah. it had to give a particular weight. And so little things like that were, were just very helpful to find out about in terms of trying to get a sense of where everybody was. So it was, even, a, it was a lot of research. Yeah. Even when you talked about the effects of the introduction of electricity in their house and how the stains on the couches were suddenly so vivid yes. and how, yeah. everything, how, you know, for the people working in the house, electricity was like not the best thing. <laughs> You don't right. think about that. Right. So that was that that was part of why that particular period of time was so interesting to me, because all of thinking about all this new technology being introduced. And again, it also relates back to the availability of things like canned food. Do you know what I mean? Like there was, you know, wasn't that long before the book takes place where it, it, it accessing products like that 
would have been extremely difficult or, you know, a rare experience. And so that, that, that transition was very interesting to me. So thinking about going from like not having electricity to when exactly it was actually something people had in their homes, you know, I always think it would be so neat. You know, and then like when these big technological things happen to us, you don't realize in the moment that they're going to be these huge shifts. Right. I'm like, who's going to use an iPad? That's so stupid. (laughs) Like I would never use that, you know? And then all of a sudden now I have kids all over the house on different iPads. Like who would have thought, right? It's It's, like, it's amazing. So I was thinking about my daughter, my eldest child is 20 and I have a son who's eight and I still remember Isa, my daughter, playing on those little pretend computers, like speak yes. and spell things. And she was yep. perfectly content with that. And now it's just like, you know, just from one child to the next, how much their relationship to, to all these new things that have happened. It's like, he wants, no, he would never play. <laughs> he wants a real computer. Yeah. And like, it's, it's pretty amazing how fast things that change. That yeah. thing happened because my stepmother gave them a speak and spell. That's funny. Holidays. And they were like, oh, that's nice. And I was like, this is amazing. I used to use them. So awesome. I know. I know. Like on the bed, like loving it, you know, and they were like, you know, back to Roblox. So yeah, it's pretty incredible. But any, but then you think about the impact of something like this and how it changed society in such a major way. It's crazy. Right. Crazy. Right. Was that, was this, by the way, something that used to happen, the family here, not adopted, but sort of took these boys as interns, if you will, in the kitchen yeah. staff and around the house and would just like pick them from an orphanage and then sometimes shoot them back. And was this something that happened or tell yeah, me? Yeah, like uh, uh, apprenticeships. Apprenticeships. Thank you for That's the word. What, yes. yeah. yeah. For, I don't know what the term would be, but yeah, people that were, you know, arrested, I guess, juveniles for mm-hmm. delinquency and didn't have parents and things like that. So yeah, that was pretty variable from state to state at that time. But yeah, I did I did do research for that as well. I don't I do research and and it's like the basis of it. I do not always stick to the facts and the things like as specifically that's part of why I didn't set it in an in like an actual place because it's not really about a specific place. Do you know what I mean? So I was trying to I wanted to have enough knowledge that I felt like it was a world I could inhabit, right? Both as a reader and a writer, but I didn't really want to be confined by the sort of the facts, the, do you know what I mean? I do. Yeah. So, cause sometimes too, like I know, especially when you're talking about how juvenile, what the law was at that time, the execution (laughs) of things can be a lot messier anyway. Do you know what I mean? So certain things that maybe were supposed to happen, we all know from the present do not actually happen that way all the time. So yeah. And as a fiction writer, that's okay. You can, yeah. can take yeah. some liberties. So. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So, and I, that's then for me, that's part of why, I don't know. I like historical fiction. I think it's really interesting because I think you have a greater freedom to sort of try to explore maybe deeper truths about what's going on and the connections between things as opposed to, I don't know, just remaining in, in dialogue with, with a set of facts. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. 
so interesting. Yeah. I tell people I, I do a lot of research and then try to forget it. <laughs> do you know what I So it can be a little bit more instinctual when I'm writing it. So well, I think sometimes it's clear, not in your book, but, you know, in, occasionally in books where you read a fact that somebody puts in and it kind of jolts you out of the narrative because you're like, we didn't need to know that necessarily. But right. clearly, like the author knew this and wanted to show that she knew this or he knew this. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. Like this song or this shop or whatever. And you're like, but I didn't, that didn't further your scene. So this just jolted me out. So it's almost like it can be too much when you put in facts. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think sometimes you're trying to, or I know for me, if I focus too much on that, then it's like, you sort of feel like you have to explain what you're doing with those facts by getting into the background and all of that. And that really wasn't what the book (laughs) was about. So I just, you know, I tried to use the facts to the extent that they, I don't know, push the book forward in the way I wanted to go. Yeah. That's really like inhabiting the moment for me. Do you know what I mean? That's great. (laughs) Uh, That's great. So once you do all your research, then do you start writing or do you do it in tandem? Like how long did this whole process even take you? Well, for this book, it's interesting because I actually wrote my dissertation like years before on the Chicago World's Fair of 1893. So, and when I wrote it, I was thinking about completely different things, but I, I, a lot of the information, certainly about commodities and stuff like that came from the research I was doing for the dissertation. Mm-hmm. So that's not why I was aware of that time period. So but when I did the, the, my dissertation was actually about, in part about tourism. So it was a completely different subject. Well, not completely different, but a very different subject, but it just made me aware of, of that time period. Yeah. Well, in a way, you've made all of us tourists. <laughs> you have. That's like how you've done it. You're like, all right, you're coming along on the ride with me, and we're right. all tourists right here. So, oh, that's an interesting way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Through time and space. Yeah. So. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> now your PhD is justified. <laughs> no, exactly. Huh? All that research. It all makes sense. So, yeah. But the writing part itself, how long did that part take when you sat down to make it into a story? A very long time because I started the character, the Rib King, that's right, what he becomes, appears or is mentioned many times in my previous novel, The Talented Ribkins, as like, because that's a contemporary book and he's the family patriarch. So they, they reference him, like all of his descendants reference him at one point or another. And in that book, the only image, they don't really know that much about his real life. It's sort of like family lore. And the only image they actually have of him is the, the label of a camp, right? That he... <laughs> these ads he appeared in. So yeah, and that, so he represented very specific things in that book in terms of like the idea of family and tradition and and how that sort of becomes a, a very willful act, like claiming tradition. Because the reason he's evoked by all the characters, he comes up when they're they're kind of trying to justify something they're doing. And it becomes like, this is, you know, how we behave in the world. This is because of this example, but they're actually really 
um, sort of making it up to a certain extent. So it's just, it was about, it was about di- totally different things. So I start in any event to make a short story long, <laughs> I started writing about the character or he manifested itself in my mind, like a very long time ago before the first book came out. So probably around 2013, actually. Mm. Yeah. And then I, in general, I do a lot of background writing. So for that book, I just knew their whole family history by the time the book was published (laughs) or that book was finished. And so I, I did some preliminary writing back then, 2013. So meanwhile, you've been working on this family and this essentially like a series, if you will, like for almost a decade. And yet in the middle of all this now in like news and the world, all these things are happening with what exactly what you're talking about with the sort of commodification of, or appropriation even of, of using imagery to sell products, right? Like Uncle Ben's and Aunt Jemima and how everybody is now coming off of these packages. So what do you think about that? Because there's been a lot of different takes on that. And I've heard that the families are not exactly pleased that they're going to lose that income source from having the pictures on those products. Were they receiving income from it? I didn't even know that. That's I what I heard. I mean, for, I sh- for I which have, product? I should have researched this. This is from my husband. So I will. Oh, <laughs> he, was oh like, okay. he, read, he read that that the family, at least for one of the products, I don't know if it was Uncle Ben's or Aunt Jemima, that they had been receiving like dividends of sorts from having okay. it be part of their family. And that now with the picture and the label being changed and everything, they were going to stop receiving that money. And so they were like, wait, you're doing this to sort of help us, but you're hurting us. That's what I heard. Well, I know, I don't know as much about Uncle Ben, which I know was later. Uncle Ben, I believe was, came about in the 1940s, maybe even, maybe it was earlier. I don't know, but Aunt Jemima is not a real person. That was always fictitious. And it was actually introduced at the Chicago World's Fair of 1893. So that was the intersection of that research. And so it was a fictitious character and it was originally portrayed by a woman named Nancy Green. She performed Aunt Jemima and it's been performed through a series of there's not, she's not a real person. I don't think Aunt Jemima was ever a real person. And the other one that I know about is the cream of wheat man, Mm, Rastus. Yeah. So, and a lot of people don't know he has a name, but it is Rastus. And so far as I understand, I I think the image proceeded at a certain point, there was a story that he was based on an actual person, but the image actually precedes the story. So I'm not sure who would be receiving dividends. I I will do some digging into this. Can I go get him? I'll go get him in the next. No, I just, I don't, there's not a real, I know there's not a real Aunt Jemima and I'm not sure there might be, there might be, I had, I knew his name, but I think I would say it wrong. I know that supposedly the cream of wheat man, that picture was based on a real person, but I'm not sure. So I don't know if anyone's actually been receiving money for the use of these images. Okay. Well, let's put that point aside in case I'm 100% wrong, which is totally possible. (laughs) And talk about even the fact that the images are coming off. What do you think about that? Let's just talk about that. Okay. Well, (laughs) that was pretty wild, right? Because to have the book come out the year that they're supposed to be retired after in Aunt Jemima and Rastus's case, more than a hundred years. 
So for me, it was it was a interesting for personal reasons because part of the reason why I wrote the book had to do with things that were going on in the country around 2013, 2014. So the whole, there's a plot. Part of the reason Mr. Sitwell, the man who becomes the Rib King, is such a loyal servant is because he's very concerned about these three boys that are working in the house and he doesn't want them to wind up with no jobs. Mm -hmm. So he's doing all he can to sort of keep the house stable. There's only so much he can do, of course, but to keep the house stable because he sees it as a safe place for them to be, for him to be and for the employees of this family to be. And he doesn't want them all to wind up without jobs. But his primary preoccupation is these three boys. And that was very much inspired by, at that time, there was a lot of talk about the vulnerability of African-American children to racial violence. Mm -hmm. And sort of specifically, I think I was thinking about the the reaction to, to Trayvon Martin's what happened with him and the emergence of the Black Lives Matter as a like a slogan, right, or a hashtag. And so that also just the circumstances that there were all these protests last summer and that as a result of that, you would have this specific response to images that have been in place for a hundred years, <laughs> like that now we need to deal with this and we recognize that there's a problem or that they speak to a wider context that, that, you know, there's clearly a problem that needs to be dealt with. So the whole, the whole thing for me personally, in terms of what inspired the book and the wider context of things going on when the book is being published was very interesting to me because I was, I was responding really to sort of, it's almost like the opposite, you know what I mean? But the relationship between the two for me was being manifest as the book. Because I I think I was really struck by, for as much as things have changed over a hundred years, that there are so many things that have not changed. And that if you, in terms of the level of anxiety or worry about the safety of your children due to these sort of external things that are going on and has nothing really to do with who your children actually are. Right. And that's part of why I wrote that it was in response to a contemporary context that was sort of manifesting itself by a fixation on these images on, on cream of weed and Aunt Jemima that they're just there. And it's like a through line that people don't really pay attention to. So yeah, so it was kind of, it seems, it was very, for me personally, it was very interesting that the inspirate, the sort of the, the dynamics that inspired in large part writing the book would sort of have this opposite manifestation around the time the book was being published. Does that make sense? Enough. Okay. <laughs> I would have said, that's like all you yes. hear. That's, that's the most beautiful part. <laughs> Enough. That's good. I'm joking. Yes, it makes perfect sense. And wait, can we go back to what you said at the very beginning about your own relationship with food and allergies? Tell me about that. So what types of allergies and what is your relationship with food like that, that you would want it to play out on a, you know, national level inside this 
inside this book. No, no, but I'm because no, the book, you know, in my conscious mind was a very separate thing. It's just some people have pointed that right. out to me that I have, like, I don't, I can't eat, I don't eat red meat. I don't, I can't eat wheat and I, I can't eat dairy. I can't eat. So there's just so much that actually tastes good is like off limits to me for the most part. But I mean, in my conscious mind, that was a totally separate right. thing. <laughs> just, it is kind of funny because I, you know, there's so much that actually tastes good that I can't eat. And I'm right. talking about like delicious sauces and foods and stuff like that. And it is kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, anytime I try to really like watch it. I'm like, well, I should really just cut out like wheat and dairy. So, you know, you have a leg up on, that's probably why you're so driven. You know, but it's, it's different if it's like a, a choice. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I, maybe if I made like a committed decision, mm-hmm. like I'm not going to eat these things for, you know, health or whatever, that would be different than all of a sudden you can't yeah. eat these things. That's I don't know. It's very weird. I, I seem to develop a new allergy every time I have children. So <laughs> that's sort of how they like mark their, I don't know what it is. Every time I, cause it, no, seriously, every time I have a child, I, I developed another food allergy. It seems. I developed some food allergies after my third child. And I was like, oh. what do you mean? I can't eat like strawberries. I eat like a pack a day or I can't eat. like all of a sudden I did this, I did this allergy test and they were like, you're pretty much like allergic to food. Like your body uh. is just rejecting everything. And here are the 12 things you can't eat. And I was like, what? I can't eat like yeah. who's allergic to carrots. It was like the weirdest thing. But I think mine at least seemed to be going away. And then I was like, well, oh, that's good. So I don't know if you've tested yours out, but I, I kind of, yeah. you know, surreptitiously eat a piece of shrimp now and again. And I'm like, I seem to be okay. It's so stupid, but. Oh no, but that's great. But I do. Yeah. So that's interesting. So that's basically what, what happened to me. So. And my taste for red meat, not that this is relevant, but I used to eat red meat. And after I had my third child, I can no longer ever eat steak. Like the, the thought mm-hmm. of any kind of meat like that, like turns my stomach. Whereas before I had it on like my wedding night, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. who knows these weird things that happen to our bodies. It is. It's very strange. Yeah. I should probably investigate more and try to yeah. <laughs> probably know what the actual link is, but I don't, but it, it was, it's a notable thing for me. So I'm glad I'm, and I'm not glad, but I'm, you know, to, it's comforting to know I'm not the only one that has this yeah. issue. Me too. And actually I've heard I've heard it before that other people have told me that happened to them as well. Yeah. So, well, I wish I had developed an allergy to maybe, no, I don't, I don't want to say that. I I take it back. God, I take it back. I I didn't say it. It didn't even all come out. (laughs) Yeah. So do you have any advice for aspiring authors? I guess persistence is really, in my case, certainly is the key. Yeah. Keep writing. I learned so much from writing. I learned so much, you know, every day still from, from writing. So to write consistently and to just be persistent, do you know what I mean? Consistent and persistent. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's hard to, or it's a certain amount of work to, you know, sort of believe that what you're doing is important and valuable. And I, it's finding a way to sort of hold on to a sense of that is really important as well. Love it. I don't know if that's helpful, but it's it is helpful. 
It is helpful. <laughs> it is honest. That's the truth. So you're so funny because you've written, you're like clearly so bright, right? You have all these degrees and you've written all these books and you're like so great. And yet you, you're always like, does that make sense? And is that okay? And I'm like, you got it. You, <laughs> no, no, I know. I mean, that's just the way I talk. I'm sure. I know. So. No, no. It's like, you're just, <laughs> You're like a rock star and you're like, yet so timid about it. So it's funny. Anyway, well, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Time to Read Books. Thanks for this oh. fun half an hour that like flew by for me. So anyway, it was really nice to meet you. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. It was nice talking to you as well. And congratulations so. on your book. I'm so excited about it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. All take right. care. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks to today's sponsor, Chicken Soup for the Soul, Making Me Time, 101 Stories About Self-Care and Balance, edited by Amy Newmark. And just a reminder again, please pre-order a copy of my book, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology, and go to my website under the anthology tab for the fundraiser, and I hope you'll buy a ticket and join me for, and I should have mentioned, um, all proceeds go to COVID-19 research. So please join me for the fundraiser. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music.